0: Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for a beautiful morning out and for bringing us safely to your house to worship you. I pray that you would open our minds that we may understand your truth today and help us as we study the topic of the church in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're working our way through the doctrine of the church. And uh, last week we were talking about the nature of the church. And uh, we made the point what is the church not? And Last week we talked in length about the church is not Israel. Israel and the church are different. They're just two distinct peoples of God. Now generally, in eternity, how many people of God are there? In eternity, future? One. There's just one. I mean, you're, you're there or you're not, right? So there's only one people of God in eternity, future. But as God worked his plan out on the earth, God worked through people. He chose Abraham to work through Abraham and his nation. And what was Israel's real responsibility? What were they to do? Yeah, supposed to be a witness to the world. How did they respond to that? They They didn't. (laughs) What they did is they went behind their stone walls and said, Isn't it wonderful that we're the people of God and everybody else out there is going to burn in hell? And that's how they viewed um, things. They were not the witness to the world that there could be. So when Israel rejected the Messiah, God set Israel aside. He's now working through a new body, the church. And he's going to work through the church until the end of the time that he has set aside. That's uh, something known only to God. We're going to talk about that when we get to eschatology, that there's coming an end to the church age. And then God will once again turn to Israel, his chosen people, and work through them. But it's not Israel. The church is not Israel. Um, We talk about the births are different. We were born at different times. Um, The nationality is different. Israel is of the earth. They were given earthly promises, right? Real estate, land. And that land was bounded by earthly markers like the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean Sea. And those who want to make all those promises completely spiritual or allegorical have problems with, well, what do you do about the Euphrates River? Is there a Euphrates River in heaven? That doesn't make any sense. It's talking about an earthly plot of land that they were given. The church has never been given that. The church is to not have that real estate down here.
1: What is the correlation then between the church and Israel if the church and Israel are not
0: the The correlation is that they're just two distinct peoples of God. They're two groups. There's a group called Israel in the Old Testament. That was a national group descended from Abraham. Actually, not everybody from Abraham is a Jew, right? right. We talked about that. So Israel was God's chosen people. God chose to work through them. Why? He wanted to. I mean, he doesn't give us a reason other than I'll pick Abraham. And he chose Abraham to work through Abraham. And then he always had in his mind the concept of the church. Now that, again, we talk about it being a mystery in the Old Testament. It wasn't seen there. God knew it was going to be there. God knew it was coming. But the Old Testament doesn't talk about the church. It talks about Israel. Talks about a national Israel. And God's always worked through a people. How has God mediated his message and rule? It's always been through a people. And in the Old Testament, that was Israel. God mediated his rule via Israel. In the New Testament, it's through the church. Now, when we talk about mediating his rule, what we mean by that is not that we rule the earth, but that we share the message, the good news of a relationship with God. Do you understand the difference there? That's very important. We're not to rule the world.
1: How do you think so much?
0: The similarities is we that we're both a people of God. Of Israel,
1: right.
0: We're not an extension of Israel. Well, what, we're a different well, body. A we are a different body. We are a distinct, called-out body, composed of both Jew and Gentile. Does that make any sense?
1: Well, so uh, we, would, we would emphasize that Israel was first, but the church is, is the end body,
0: I guess. Right. I was thinking I'm trying to draw this for you a little bit. I mean, I totally
1: understand. I just want to have a way Here's the Old Testament. The
0: yeah. In the Old Testament, who were the people of God? The Israelites. Israelites. All right. So I'm going to say, okay, here's, here's, here's Israel. Israel is the people of God. In the New, And the Gentiles are up here. Okay, they're not, they're not the people of God. They were, in fact, Ephesians says you were far off. You were outside covenant so in the old testament if you were a gentile how did you become saved I i became a jew i had to become a jew i had to identify with god's people and there are ways to do that right there are ways to do that now in the new testament what do you have well in the new testament you have one body which is the church that's composed of both israel and the gentiles Okay, there's, there's no national distinction, if you want to put it this way, that you, got, you just got one body, the church, composed of both Israel and the Gentiles. And the only difference right now is the Jews descend from Abraham and we don't. That's really the difference in the church. But there's one people of God. He has grafted in the Gentiles. And if you want to study that, read Romans 11, where it talks about how we were grafted into the root. We were Made part of the covenant people of God. But there's coming a day in which the church ends. In which God once again turns and deals with his people, Israel, in the tribulational period. All right? Now, what is our role in the millennium? We're going to talk about this in eschatology. What, what's the church going to be doing in the millennium? Hopefully it will be like spread more. No, there's no need to spread the word. We're we're going to rule and reign with Christ. That's part of our reward. And what is Israel going to get in the millennium?
1: Israel,
0: They get all the promises that God gave them. The land. They get the land. They get the promises. They get the kingdom. They get what God promised them. This is sort of a way to understand it. But there's one people of God right now. This is the church. Made up of both Jew and Gentile. No national distinctions. Okay? But we're not, we're not Israel. The church is not Israel. The church did not replace. See, if you have this replacement, we'll call it replacement theology, where the church replaces Israel, then this is the church here. The church becomes Israel. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches very clearly in Ephesians all over the place that in the church there's both Jew and Gentile. As well as Paul, Galatians 3.28. Galatians has it. In Galatians, it's talking about the distinctiveness. In Galatians 3.28, it says in the church, there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile. And what does that mean? Well, in the church, all those national and gender and um, occupational distinctions are meaningless. We're all one people of God in the church. So we're not Israel. Our nationality is different. The relationship with the Father is different. Israel never called God the Father, Father. We do. Our Father, which art in heaven, we call God Father. In fact, um, personally, when I pray, I always call God Father. That's just, that's how I pray. I don't use Lord, I use Father. So you can usually tell my devotions when I do them for the bulletin that it says Father, not Lord. That's just me, all right? Um, the relationship with the son is different. We're pictured as the bride of Christ, right? How is Israel pictured in the Old Testament again and again and again? As an adulterous wife, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Book of Hosea pictures that. Isaiah pictures that. Again again, God says you went out and played the whore on top of the mountains. And what He means by that is you went up on top of the mountains to do your false worship in those days. That's where you went and did your worship to Baal and Astaroth and these other deities. And again again, tr- Israel is seen as an adulterous wife. But we are seen as the pure bride of Christ, Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. Um, the relationship with the Holy Spirit is different in what sense? Well, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon believers to empower them for a season. But there was not the permanent indwelling like we have, right? We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, Israel had a temple. They went to a place to worship. We are the temple. You are the temple of God. All right. So the church is not Israel. The church is also not the kingdom. What do we mean by kingdom? Well, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, um, it's a sphere of God's influence. But usually what that refers to mainly in the Jewish mindset would be the millennial kingdom. The time when God rules and reigns. Psalm chapter 2 where the Messiah reigns from Jerusalem and Israel is exalted above all nations. We are not the kingdom. There's a distinction there. Now why is this an important thing? Because if you believe that the church is the kingdom then what should the church be doing? Should be ruling and reigning. And there's a theology out there that says that. It's called dominion theology. Pat Robertson is part of that um, ilk. And basically the idea there is that the church should take over the world for Jesus. And we should rule and reign. Um, the church is not an entity of this world, right? We are an entity of the next. We're not to rule and reign. We're not. And when, when the church took over, it was some of the darkest periods in human history in the Middle Ages. Um, we're not the kingdom of God. There's a distinction between the church and the kingdom of God. It's also not a building composed of wood, bricks, and mortar. We think of churches as buildings, as places that we go. And although there's a sense in which a local church meets in a church building, um, it's not merely a building. Um, it's not a state or national organization. We. This is very important. The church's role in and there's a lot of debates on this. But the church's role in this world is not to take over society for Jesus. What are we to be? Salt, salt and light. What salt do? Preserves. Preserves. It, it freshens the taste. It, it's a preservative. It also enhances the taste. All right. What's uh, light supposed to be? Illumination. Illumination. And throughout the Bible, what is the light the picture of? Christ, but also of knowledge, of understanding, of spiritual understanding. The church's role is to be salt and light. We're not to rule and reign. So in our, in our society here, in, in Illyria, what, are, what is our church, what is the responsibility of our church? It's to be a godly influence. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that. And we are to be influencers. But we're not to take over. And um, to me, this was the great error, I believe all of you who are old enough to remember this, the Moral Majority back in the 70s with Jerry Falwell who the idea there is we're going to turn the church into this political movement you know we've got all of these evangelical Christians and we're going to make evangelicalism a force in American politics. Disaster. It's a total disaster. We're not a political party and the problem when you do that is then you equate Christianity with what? Right-wing, narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobic, anti-women, whole nine yards. And so you have a whole contingent of people who reject Christianity, not at all because they have any idea who Jesus is, but because they're of a different political persuasion. It is dangerous for the church to become a political party. And yet that's what we've done. Now, balancing that off, it's, it's not wrong for me as a Christian to take Part in my political process, I'm allowed to do that in this country. I certainly should vote my conscience. And if I'm a Christian, that's going to cause me to vote certain ways on certain issues. But we have this idea that, you know, if we can just get Christian people in Congress, we'll solve the problem. Will we? Ain't going to work. It isn't going to work. If we can just get a Christian president, everything will be great. No, that doesn't work. Christian congressmen, Christian senators. No, but that doesn't work. Look, when you do that, what are you putting your hope in? Man. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. If you fight the world's battles, the world's ways, you're going to lose because they're better at fighting it that way than we are. We're not a protest movement. We're not to go out and picket as a church. Go out and picket things. Be, be an influence be salt and light do you understand what I'm trying to get at here when, when you look at the New Testament you look at the society that the New Testament was in the New Testament was written in it was rotten it was a lot worse than this one by the way um, society was really in a mess back then and what do you find every New Testament author avoiding getting involved in politics Getting involved in the political process. Now understand what I mean by that. It doesn't mean that they're not saying as a Christian we are to be salt and light and influence. We are aren't we? But we are not to turn Christianity into a let's close the Colosseum movement. Or do away with slavery movement in the, in the Roman Empire. Or let's clean up the town movement. Because if you do that, this is the, this is the problem. I hate. I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I can if I'm not careful. When we do that and we turn the church into some political force, what's the one thing required to gain political success? What do you need to be able to do? Manipulate, Manipulate but it ends with C. Compromise, right? And who are you going to compromise with? Yeah. Um, A few years ago a document came out called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. And uh, it was put together by people who meant well. um, Chuck Colson was one of the ones who put that together. And the idea there says, look, you know, we have have all these social ills. We got abortion, we got pregnancy, we got drug and, and alcohol addiction, all that. As a Christian community, we need to come together and work together to solve our social problems. So what happened is, Chuck Colson got together with Catholicism and I think Eastern Orthodox, all kinds of groups and said, look, you know, let's quit squabbling over our doctrinal differences. We need to get together because we've got to solve the abortion issue in our community. Now, if you're going to get together at that level, what are you not going to tell them? Don't tell them that. Good night. That's going to ruin the coalition. And, And don't don't try to evangelize the people because you know Catholicism wants to evangelize them another way, and this other group wants to evangelize them. You're compromising the truth. You're compromising the truth on the altar of we got to fix our society. Do you understand what I'm trying? It is not a fix
1: of society; it's a fix of the heart. And that
0: That's right. So, so what should we as a Christian church do? Well, if we see a problem with teenage pregnancy, let's uh, let's support cornerstone among women. Let's, uh, let's go out and do that. Um, if we see a problem, and we, I, I think our church has done a wonderful job in this, if we see a problem with, uh, for example, hunger in our community, well as a church, let's, let's help feed the, the people. All right. We don't need to go and get 50 other churches all over the theological map to form a coalition. If you see a problem, go for it. Go do it. All right. Because once you start bringing in everybody else, you're going to have to start compromising things, and what happens after a while is you're no longer able to share the gospel. What's going to really solve the problem? Because you don't want to upset the coalition. You got to be careful with that. Am I making any sense here? Does it?
1: Yes. So you become unequally
0: yoked. Right. And, and specifically in this document, and I'm, I, you know, it's, it's been a few years back, but they came out with a new one. Um, specifically in the document, it says we need, to, we need to repent of the sin of trying to sh- steal each other's sheep. In other words, what Colson is basically saying is, look, as, as Christians, as evangelicals, we need to quit trying to evangelize the Catholics. Because after all, they're in the same sheepfold. So we're not allowed to evangelize them. We're not allowed to... There, there's problems there. Oh, yeah, it is. But see, here's the pressure. The pressure is when you... And it's a good cause, right? How many people want abortion and pregnancy to go down? I do. I really want it to go... You're, in, you're with the cornerstone among women. We really want to do that. But if you say, well, I'm going to do that by linking up with the Buddhists and the Hindus and everybody else... Yeah, and... Um, but I'm not allowed to evangelize, I'm not allowed to share the gospel, I'm not allowed to witness to these gals, are you really solving the problem in the long term? No, if you want to do that, well then go do it. Can you join yourself
1: with Satan?
0: Mm-hmm. And notice, now I really believe this, is, I believe this strongly. In Corinthians where it says, do not be unequally yoked, it's talking about evangelistic there. Evangelistically, can I be unequally yoked with groups that do not believe the gospel? No. Now, there's a lot of other doctrines that you, know, you need to just get over, all right? You, you, you need to wor- not worry about. I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the essential truth of the gospel. You can't compromise on that. If you do, you've lost it all. And what has happened a lot of times, when, it, when a church becomes a political movement, you have to have necessity compromise. And once you start compromising, where do you stop? You don't. And what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself sliding and sliding and sliding and sliding. I don't know if you all remember the modernist liberal debates of the early 1900s. Probably none of you were alive then. <laughs> but there's a big debate. And really what happened in, in this whole modernist fundamentalist controversy is a lot of churches says, look, you know, we're so busy worrying about the spiritual things, we need to help deal with society. So they started working on the societal issues. And what happened is as time went on you can map this if you study it as time went on what they did is they had to start jettisoning jettisoning their doctrinal distinctives in order to succeed in the social message
1: Compromise.
0: and after a while you have what you have today where you've got mainline denominational churches that don't have a doctrinal statement much there's no need for one you, I, I talked to people who come out of the, you know some of the Methodist churches There's no doctrinal statement there. I mean, they have one, but they don't really adhere to it. Be anything. It doesn't matter because it's more important that we love people than we tell them the truth. Both of those go hand in hand together. You need to love people, but you love them by telling them the truth. Yeah, you you compromise. So as a church, what do you do? If you see something in the community that you have a burden for, well then, as a church... Go do it. Don't try to invite 50 other churches who believe all kinds of different things to come along to try and do a little better job. If you see a need, go for it. Sometimes you spend more of your
1: time and energy and money trying to get the other churches together. With right.
0: And what happens a lot of times is you see, you see a large drain as we're trying to do these ecumenical type movements, a drain of money, energy, resources, time off doing good things when you need to be doing the better thing. You really got to think about this because it's a danger. We're, we're facing it in our soci- our churches today where, you know, you got churches linking up with everybody else. And that doesn't mean, you know, you want to be do you want obnoxiously separatist. That's not what we're talking about here. But there is a core of the gospel that you can't compromise on. And once you give that up, you've lost it all. And that's what happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s. You had good churches that said, hey, you know, we need to loosen up our doctrines here a little bit and try to, you know, um, relate and, and, and band together because we have these bigger problems to deal with. And what happened is then you had this slide into legalism, or not slide into legal, slide into modernism, and slide into compromise. Why are you here as a church? To fix the world or to evangelize it?
1: Evangelize it.
0: Evangelize it. Yeah.
1: Slavery. Obviously slavery is still Mm -hmm. in practice. Mm-hmm.
0: And I would say as long as you don't compromise the gospel message, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this, yeah.
1: was, this was an issue during the War, and, and John Adams actually had, when he went back to Congress after serving as president, he actually pushed for freedom for the slaves. Mm-hmm.
0: We look at Wilber, anybody, what's that movie on Wilberforce? What's that movie Amazing Grace, yeah. Amazing Grace on Wilberforce? Yeah, yeah, I mean, what you see happen in England with William Wilberforce, I think it's William Wilberforce, is uh, he was behind the, the anti slave movement in Britain. And all I'm saying, all I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is I'm not trying to say we should not preach against the sins. Or in the case of slavery, for example, that it was wrong for the church to get involved in the anti-slavery movement. I'm not saying that, any more than it's wrong for us to get involved in the um, anti-abortion movement by, for example, supporting Cornerstone among women or we give women alternatives. All right, that's that's positive. That's what we should be doing as a church. What I'm trying to get at, and when I'm the warning I'm giving, is when you say I'm going to compromise my biblical truths in order to further. A social agenda. You don't see Wilberforce doing that. He never said, well, you know, if, if I just give up this whole concept of salvation by grace alone, I could increase my movement and get slavery out earlier. He never did that. He never compromised his biblical standard. That's what I'm trying to say we shouldn't do. God would never ask us to see. Um, so you just get rid
1: of harmony, to join up with a witness and start to say that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. And Are oh Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like. yeah. I, like <laughs> yeah, I think. That
0: a yeah, that—that's the point. Is—is is that we should, as Christians, we have a certain responsibility to those around us. Who did Christ minister to? The rich or the poor? Yeah, the, poor. the poor. That's a no-brainer, right? And we
1: can fight that, and
0: we can do that.
1: Right. We can but do that. Right. That yeah. The problem that? No. Right.
0: No, that it's not. You know, it, we have a problem with hunger in our community. So, what are we doing as a church? Well, we're collecting food and donating it. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to do. But we're not compromising our biblical stance by doing that, are we? No. Right. That's where I'm saying the issue is. Because it's very easy if if you if you get so involved in in, in trying to forward put forward a political agenda. The pressure is to compromise.
1: Because even if we could do more, as, mm-hmm. if we work with
0: a, closely with another denomination, and could do three times as much with just the two of us, if it means we have to compromise that Christ is Lord, then we should not be doing it. Right. And and so I'm talking, what I'm talking that. about here is essential truth. you understand that? I'm not talking about yes. some of this other stuff. I'm talking about the core of the God. What's going to keep you out of heaven? Mm-hmm. You don't compromise that.
1: We talked about, what, two years ago? Yes.
0: I'm sorry. You were gonna. Main thing, yeah. And and we should we really should be involved. Probably as a church, you know, I'm talking about you know Christian church. We should probably be more involved. You know, one of our great, um, I want to call it uh, maybe weaknesses is that we've tried to withdraw from society. Maybe we need to be more involved in society and do things for those around us and and be salt and light, be an example. But you don't compromise your essential truth by doing that. That's that's what I'm trying to get at. Here. You know, and I think that's what's one thing I like about our church is we're doing things, but we're not compromising our our doctrinal statement to do it. We're not compromising the gospel message to pull it off. We're not right. using our influence to push for an official in an elected
1: position in
0: and 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 to Ruth Ann's um, point, there it's very important when you look at, you look at our society today. You know, there's these whack jobs out to say Christianity is the big bane of human history. If we got rid of that, we'd all be much better. Whenever you see Christianity in a culture, you see a good culture. You want, you, you know, and that, that's the problem with some people. They get so myopic they just see what's around them. You go somewhere else in the world where there's a non-Christian culture that's been there for a while and compare it to to, to here. And you'll be glad you, you were here. Go to India, a non-Christian culture where you walk across people dying on the street and it doesn't matter to you because they deserve death anyways because they did something bad in a previous life. I mean, where Christianity has truly taken root and in influence, you see a positive uplifting of that society. You see emphasis on equality. You see emphasis on human rights. You see emphasis on gender equality to a large extent. You know, women think it's bad here. Go over to Saudi Arabia. You're not allowed to drive a car. You're not allowed to go out in public without being fully covered with a little hole through the sea things. I mean, go over there and see what it's like to live. So Christianity has had a positive influence, but it's a byproduct. It's not, it's not the main mission of the church, but it's a byproduct of changed hearts. And we are to be out there preaching the gospel to change hearts. We're not a national political movement. We're not to be that. But we are to be salt and light. And where you see a lot of Christians in society, you do see positive influences. You see, in England, it was the abolition of slavery long before it happened in America. And that was largely due to Wilberforce, who was behind that, who was a Christian. I think, too, um, when well, we get, start doing
2: these movements and we start doing good things and things like that, um, we start doing it in our own strength. Yeah.
0: Right. Jesus did not try to abolish slavery. Right. He did not try to clean up all the social mm-hmm. ills. He worked to change people. And that's what we're here toward. I think another
1: factor that it's very easy for us to flaw silver is the impact of prayer. Oh yeah.
0: Well, that, I'm glad you brought that up because our problem is when we're faced with a problem, what, as in Americans, what do we do?
1: Fix
0: it. Well, we want to fix it, and well, how do we fix it? Well, we'll get a movement together, we'll get a bunch of, we'll get a group together, we'll, we'll, we'll lobby Congress, we'll blah blah. And, and somebody in the back room says, back row says, hey, you know, why don't we pray? Oh, we don't want to do that. Well, that's our weapon. No, they pass a law that we're not allowed to do it. That's our weapon. That. <laughs> Really, really, the New Testament says that, that is the major weapon we have, is prayer. We'll do everything but pray. But that's where we should start. It's with prayer. Yeah, you've got to start with prayer. And, and that's where our powers And that's what it's saying in First Corinthians. The weapons of warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. What spiritual weapon do we have? Prayer. We have an almighty God. The church is not a denominational organization. The concept of denominations is foreign to the New Testament. We have this large large denominational structure. It's not that. Um, It's not what Roman Catholicism says in them. What does Roman Catholicism say? They view the church as the mystical body of Christ. And who's the head of the mystical body of Christ on the earth? The Pope. All right. The church is the mystical. And they say, and this is very important, they say outside the church there is no salvation. That's the official teaching of Roman Catholicism. So if you're not part of the Roman Catholic Church, you're outside the church, you are not saved in, in their theology. So the church is not what the... Now, is the church a mystical body of Christ? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Well, yeah, but it's not the Roman Catholic view of that. It's not what the liberals say it is. What does the liberals say? Well, the, this, this, is really, this really came out of the, um, the modernism-liberalism debate, they say, well, the church is sort of this man-made movement. It's extraneous, and really, it's holding back society. You know, if we could get you pinheaded you know, people worrying about theology out of the way, we could really move forward a, a good, wonderful, humanistic, utopian agenda. You know, If we could just get you Christians not worry about the gay people, we could really make some progress in, in equal rights. Um, that's the mentality of of uh, the liberals, they actually say we are holding back society. We're keeping it from moving forward. We're a hindering force. It's not what the neoliberals say. Neoliberals are new brand of liberalism, and they say, "Well, the church is really this living spiritual society of people that have some kind of shared experience, idea of God, kind of thing." All right. Um, and they would say that the organized church is not part of God's plan, but the mystical sort of whatever you are part of is sort of a like a society of of people that are banded together with a. And, and here's what this this does here. This means what you see the church as, and what I see the church as, and what you see the church as is totally irrelevant because it's true for all of us. Whatever you see the church to be can be whatever you want it to be. All right. Um, Again, it's the old problem. If you believe in everything, you wind up believing in nothing. All right, there is no no reality there. It, if you have the, this idea of the church, well, that's fine, that's good. That rings your bell, floats your boat, have at it. But uh, I think it's this other thing over here. Um, Neo-orthodox comes along. This is Carl Bart and all of them. and you to, I'm just putting this in for the, some of the ideas that are going out there. They say that the church is this uh, fluid living reality and it's constantly being recreated by divine activity. You know, God is sort of morphing the church. So the church sort of morphs and melts and moves along with whatever society it's in. But it's not, it, it's, it's not uh, something solid. It's something that morphs. So they would say, for example, the church in America will look different than the church in Britain, which will look different than the church in China. And it's just whatever it morphs to that society. You see a lot of this in the postmodern movement. Where the church sort of morphs into whatever you want it to be. It's
1: called the emergent church. Emergent church. It's kind of like the, those that say that the Constitution is a living thing and it changes to mean what it needs
0: yep. to mean in today's society. Yeah. It doesn't mean what it meant. Like so, for example, the, the neo Orthodox view would say, uh, you know, we got we got to get rid of the, the strictness of this book. We need to see the, the church as something that, that sort of morphs and moves and redefines itself and shapes itself with the society that it's in. It The Bible
2: doesn't really mean marriage to be that
0: way. Well, see, what do the neo-Orthodox say? Remember long back, the neo-Orthodox say the Bible contains the Word of God. If you look in here, no, excuse me, the Bible becomes the Word of God. In other words, it becomes the Word of God when you read it and it means something to you. In and of itself, it's not the Word of God, it's whatever you make it out to be that becomes the Word of God. That sounds really weird, but that's what they believe. All right. It becomes the word of God. Um, the Bible becomes something. Some truth in the Bible becomes something when you have a divine interaction with it. It's basically. But other than that, it's just in a page. And what that means is that you can read a passage and you can get some view of that. And that's, that's positive. That's good. I can get this, read the same passage, get a different view of that, get a different thing altogether. But that's okay too. Because the Bible is whatever it becomes. It's, it's living. It's moving. It's, it's fluid. There's, there's no solidity to it. Um yeah. Back
1: to the liberal mindset about the church being kind of in the way anymore and if we were just out of the way, blah blah blah. Um that's where the the statement that I hear a lot where the what I don't believe in is institutionalized religion, but I'm spiritual.
0: Right. And see that that's the that kind of thing is sort of like the neo-orthodox a little bit. you know. And these are all, they're all kind of the flavors of this stuff, right? Um, but it's sort of like, well, that's what you think the church is, but to me the church is not that. It's just this virtual kind of thing. And um, Look, the, the, there is an organized church. There is a mystical church. There's an organized church. We're going to look at that. Um, the neo-evangelicals come along. They came out of, they're the new evangelical, and they, they say, well, you know, the church is a, as a body, and we, we just let anybody in. I mean, it doesn't matter. You, know, you, can, you can join our church and be part of our, our faith search, our search for truth. And um, what happens is, what they do is they sacrifice the purity of the church for peace. In other words, what they would do is they would allow anybody and everybody to join the church regardless of what they believe or didn't believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. Because we're all on a search. And and how dare I say that I've got the truth? I mean, that's the big thing. You know, that's what freaks the liberals out. Is how dare you say that you know what's right? How dare you say that? You're just pompous when you come along and say you know the truth. Because I don't believe what you believe. And I believe I know the truth as well as you do. And who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Um, And again, you deny the authority of scripture. So if that's not what the church is, what is it? When you look at the New Testament, what is the church? Well, there's three major views of that. Three major camps that, that, that um, draw out of the New Testament what they believe the church is. The first group says the church is only a local group of baptized believers. It's a local group of baptized believers. So they would look at, you know, the church at Thyatira, the church at Ephesus, the church at... Colossae the church at Thessalonica the church at Corinth and uh, they would say that the the, the church that's found in the New Testament always refers to a local assembly of believers it does not ref- there is no mystical universal church only a local church all right we're going to talk about the universal church in a minute but there's only a local church and some extreme ones go along and say only a select few become the bride of Christ. Not every church is of the bride of Christ. Only a select few. And there are some. And I, I, I'm trying, I was thinking this morning. I think it's the Watchman Nee. I think might have Watchman or Witness Nee. One of those um, said that each city should have a single church. In other words, you shouldn't have more than one church in a city. All right. And why is that? Well, that's the pattern of the New Testament. Now, here, let me take a short digression. And talk about a couple of things that come out that's going to guide our discussions coming up here. When you look at at church, um, there's a couple of ways that people try to get their heads around this whole concept of the church. And I want to split it into two words here one of them is pattern, I'm going to use the term pattern, and another one is prescription okay, prescription, I can't spell and write at the same time, and talk and think, um, prescription, yeah, prescription, alright, and, and the argument is this, okay, when, when I look at the New Testament, what do I see in the New Testament regarding the church, I see a certain pattern, don't I, alright, I see a, the church followed a certain pattern, okay, so that's the pattern group, but then there are some places in the New, New Testament where it's just not the pattern, it is a prescription. This is what the church ought to do. Follow what I'm getting at here? A pattern is what did it do. A prescription is what it should do. You understand the difference here, okay? And there's a big debate in, in ecclesiology and people who study this about which one of these should drive our view of the church. There's a big debate on this. And I'll show you what. There's a lot of things that fall out of this. Okay. For example, there are those that say the church should pattern itself after the New Testament church. So whatever church you're in, it should be patterned exactly like the New Testament churches because that's how they did it there. Now, is there some validity to that? But is it a command? No, Now, there are some things that are a command. Well, yeah, there are some things that are commanded. Okay? And this goes back to another thing called the Reformation Principle. And the idea there is, how, how do we define the church? How do we define the practice of a church? And there are those that say, well, if it's not forbidden, we can do it. All right? In other words, if the New Testament doesn't forbid the church to do certain things, we can do it. We have the freedom to do that. Others say no, 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 if the New Testament doesn't specifically prescribe it, you can't do it. Follow the difference? Okay, so what they're doing is they're going back to this thing. Hey, we need to pattern all of our churches after the New Testament. We have to do it exactly the way they did it. Alright, and we have to, here's, here's here's some of the arguments that come out of this. What do you do with music? Well, there are some, they say, well, the New Testament, you know, they didn't have pianos. So we're not allowed to have a piano. I don't know if you knew this, but when the piano first went into the church, it was a massive scandal. A piano. Why? Because it was an instrument down at the bar, down at the pubs. And uh, it was scandalous to have that. If you go back to some of the Puritan churches in early American history, they didn't have singing and instruments in the church. Why? Well, it's, it's not in the New Testament. We can't have it. It's forbidden. We're not allowed to have musical instruments. A guitar is all horrors, you know. Actually having a guitar and a drum, that's just out, you know, that's just ungodly to the nth degree. Um, the, uh, what's going to fall out of this is the, um, how, do you, how do you organize your church? Do you have a single pastor who's the head of the church or do you have a plurality of elders? How do you organize your church? Well, the New Testament pattern is what? No. A plurality of godly leaders. One of which is a pa- Of course, they're pastors, that's what they do. But there's a, there's a plurality of godly men. All right? That, and, and there are deacons underneath that that do the service of the church, that serve the tables, etc. Well, if you take the pattern as Prescription, our church technically violates that a little bit. We're not organized quite that way. Um, Here's another one. I'm really going to have fun with this in a couple weeks. What's the role of women in the church? There's one. What's the pattern of the New Testament church? Men, elders, male leadership. Is that a prescription oh that's where the argument goes we'll have to wait talk about that but I actually by the way just so you know I do believe there is a prescription for that but we'll look at it when we get there all right and there's there's some there's a spectrum
1: That's the debate. Is it still against the panel? I mean, i just wondering if there's a small... No, I just, I just want to ask you because, you know, I mean, there's so many more people now around. Yeah, I, I know that each group believes something different. I understand that. But there's so many more people around now, too, because it says it was just a local group of people. Mm-hmm. Like we have our, um, what do you call it, our groups, you know, our
0: life groups? Denominations or, or associations. Or Are some people that say that.
1: Right. Yeah. Right.
0: So, the The pattern of the early church was that way. Was that what the was that's like? the pattern. And see, that's that's where the debate comes. I'm telling you, there's a lot of friction and debate over this thing. You know, this is probably one of the most debated theological topics we could hit. Okay. What is the church? You could say that, well, Catholicism isn't something you really believe in. Mm-hmm. I'm not going
1: to talk about different beliefs. I'm just saying a group of people. I'm just thinking about this. And you're more fundamental churches. Were
0: separated. Yeah. There are some that would say that, that we're violating the biblical pattern. We all should get... I'm I'm just saying that's what that's what's out there. I'm not saying I agree with it or not. I'm just saying that's what's out there. There are people that believe that the church is this local body of believers, and then there's a spectrum of that. There are some that say, well, it's just a local assembly, others say no, that local assembly should be the only local assembly in a city or or a, a particular village or whatever.
1: I'm
0: just saying what's that what's going out there. I'm yeah, not and see, they're debating. What they're doing is they're debating. So, well, this is the way the New Testament church did it. And, you know, I think you're going to understand. I don't buy into that totally. I mean, I think the New Testament church did get some things right. And, there, and then what happens is out of this pattern, there are certain prescriptions that come in, like in First Timothy chapter 2 and 3. But I'm not going to say, well, just because the early church did it that way, we got to do it that way. And we're not allowed to do it any other way. I don't buy into that. I'm saying there are some that do. All right, there are some that that are very they're they're very I want to call it very uh, dogmatic about this. Um, I remember when um, when I was younger, we I went to Oberlin Calvary Baptist Church. There was a family that split off, and they had church in their home because they believed the New Testament pattern was you had churches in homes, not in buildings. So they wanted to get out of the building. They felt they were making God happier by having their church in their home than having it in a church building. And they they believed in the house church, a house church. I find it interesting, in the reading, I've done C.S. Lewis's
1: perspective, Um, both things he has said and things that have been written about him since his death. He was Anglican, his views were very closely aligned to the Orthodox branch of the church, but his conversion was extremely influenced by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one of his essays, <coughs> he speaks of the divisions of the church, and he said, coming in from years outside the church, His perspective was that for those who are not in the church, the church is this huge unity in spite of its denominations Mm -hmm. and its different branches. The non-believer has a sense of a unified whole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of this that we're discussing here is really very controlled by our perception from the
0: in mm-hmm. the body. Right. As opposed to what the, the, the exterior. Yeah, because the exterior Because well, what, what's different? I see five, fifteen Christian churches, pick one. They don't care about your doctrinal statement. To them, it's just the church, you know. But, uh, I'm just saying that there are some out there that that really, they emphasize this local church kind of concept. So their idea, they're usually fiercely independent. What do we mean by that? Well, they're not going to have anybody tell them what to do. No denominational affiliation. You know, they're going to go off, do their own thing, and you know, they might might, uh, meet with another church, you know, for something, but by and large, they're fiercely independent groups, very isolated among themselves. right
1: which can't be a good thing yeah right right that's, that's the problem of not having some compromise
0: mhm and a lot of times the division is over non essentials I'm just, yeah, there's just a lot of debates on this. You're right. You know, um, I'm sorry. If if you look at Jews and
2: the way he describes the church, he describes it as a bride of Christ, pure, spotless, and blameless. So, like, we all might have different churches and denominations or non-denominations, but just because you go to one doesn't mean that you're necessarily part of the church of Christ.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get to that in the third position. But, yeah, you're right. There's a second position on this, and they're they're the opposite of the first. They say, well, no, all the church is is this invisible body of Christ. That's what it is. It's an invisible body made up of believers, of true believers. And um, you don't really need to go to a local church. I mean, you you can be part of the church and not go to church. An extreme form of this would say, look, you know, if you're a Christian... And you know the Lord and you love the Lord. You don't have to go to a local church. You don't have to attend church because you're part of the universal church of Christ. So they downplay the local church. They downplay the necessity of the local church. They downplay the need to be in a local church. They would say it's really not important if you are there or not. And in fact, I knew one guy that says, okay, where are we going to go to church today? You know, they had like, he had a choice of like 10 different churches that he would just see what was playing at each church and go there. Because he was sort of like, well, I'm part of the universal body of Christ, and and there's, you know, I don't belong to a local group. I can just go anywhere I want to go, you know, and um, that's to me that's extreme. All right. But there are some that say, no, the the church is just a universal, mystical body of Christ. The the local church is really not important. You really don't need to worry about that. As long as you're part of the universal body of Christ, that's all that matters. And if you choose to be part of a local church or not, well, that's okay. It doesn't matter. It's not important. Yeah. But then there's the third position. I think this is what the New Testament teaches. What is the church? It's both. The church is both. The church is the universal body of Christ. What is the universal body of Christ? It's made up of all true believers. Those who place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. It is made up of all those who have come to Christ from Pentecost to the time that the church ends. That is the universal church. The universal body of Christ. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 2. We're all made one body. There's one body. where are the junior, Gentile, bond and free. We're all in one body. So there is a universal church. But how is that universal church manifested in our world? It's manifested in local assemblies, local churches, local groups of believers. You see that in Acts, right? In the, in the Jerusalem church, what do you have? You have a group, right? Now is there this universal body of Christ of which they're a part? Well sure, but how is that church manifested in Jerusalem? There's a Jerusalem church. And what do they have? They had organization, they had structure. And I would argue they knew who was part of it and who wasn't. Now I'm going to put a plug in here for church membership. You need to be a member of a church. You really do. That's part of being a New Testament believer. The New Testament doesn't have this idea of a floating Christian. You just float around and go from here to there to there to here. You need to be part of a church. You need to be part of a local assembly. There's a, there's a certain, um, when you want to call it uh, protection, to being part of a local church. You have a, a loyalty to that church. You know, you have people today that aren't members of anything, and if somebody looks at them cross-eyed in the hall, they're off to the next church the other week. Hi. The New Testament, look, when you look at the New Testament, they knew who was part of the church. In fact, when you went from one church to another, they sent a letter with you saying that you were a member of the church. They knew who was part of the church and they knew who who wasn't part of the church. And also that's necessary for church discipline, which we're going to talk about. You need to be part of a church. But what the New Testament sees, is sees the universal body of Christ and that universal body of Christ is manifested in local assemblies of believers and that local assembly of believers has a structure it has things that it does all right and a couple of those things are to administer the sacraments of baptism and communion church discipline and where the Word of God is preached and taught that's what a church is to be about I'm sorry
2: Mm-hmm. I know like even when I went to seminary, mm-hmm. I went to each website and I said, what is this mm-hmm. seminary I believe in? What do they, you know, doctrinally? And then I had to figure out where I doctrinally come. You know, mm-hmm. and I think people don't really pay attention to their doctrine enough.
0: No. Really, really that's why we're doing this class because right. most people don't know doctrine. They don't right. think of it. You know, they just like that church. They like the music. They like the pastor, you know, whatever. And that's where they go. You know, but there's a duty to the church. I mean it this way if, if I'm part of this church I am part of this church I shouldn't say if I am I am part of this church and um, I teach in this church I'm on the leadership board and you know what that's gonna that's gonna make me act a certain way you say now wait a minute Schaefer you're telling me you can't be godly without being part of it? well theoretically yes but what is there a pressure for me to be accountable, accountable right there's a certain accountability yep. if I go out and if I screw up in society How's it going to make our church look?
1: Bad. Really bad. Yeah. Depending on what I do. I mean, that's yeah. And um, you, you,
0: I have a cause outside of myself. All right, so I can't go and do anything I want. And you say, well, you should be godly enough that you don't do that. Well, now, wait a minute. What, is, what, what do we clearly see in Scripture? There's a community of believers, and what do we do? We admonish one another, don't we? We encourage one another to love and good deeds. Right. That's right. You can't. Mm-hmm. And you need to be part of a local assembly and you need to be an engaged part mm-hmm. right. of a local assembly. And and, and there's a certain loyalty. That you have when you become a member of a church, there's a certain loyalty. You're saying, I want to be part of this. I want to be loyal to this. And, and there's an accountability that goes in there, not only to you to that church, but that church to you. All right? Um, we need to. And, and how do you know that? Well, if you want to argue the pattern. Now, now by the way, does the New Testament command you to be a, a member of a church? No. no, it doesn't. I have to say that. It doesn't. There's no prescription but you certainly see a pattern in the early church people knew who was a member of the church and who wasn't and there was a certain loyalty that that person had to that church and a certain um, way they wanted to approach that church and Paul says I don't want to give offense to the church I don't want to do anything to hurt the testimony of the church why because it is an extension of Christ's universal body in my community
1: Right. Talks about the household
0: of faith. Yeah, you can make, although it is not a prescription commanded, you can certainly make a strong case for the pattern, because they knew who. I mean, again, you go back to to Acts. They added to the church daily such as should be saved. How did they know who was added? They kept names. You go to First Timothy chapter five, the widows right in the church. Um, how do you know what widows are in the church and what isn't? Well, they had a list. All right? There were certain things that those widows did to be put on the list of getting a daily you know, um, allotment of food and, and assistance. So they, they had widows who were in the church, widows who were outside the church. Um, the whole concept of church discipline is what? To put them outside the fellowship. Well, how can you put them outside the fellowship if they're not inside the fellowship? You can make a strong case for this. We need to be part of a local assembly. And I would urge you, if you're not a member of the church, become a member. You know, Become a member of our local church. Become a member of this body. Because I think that the New Testament view is that, yes, there is a mystical, universal church. That's called a church universal. And that's made up of every believer that's been saved from Pentecost to the rapture. We're all part of that. But how is that universal church manifested in this world? It's manifested through local assemblies of believers who have godly leadership to lead them, who administer the sacraments. If you had no church, who's going to baptize you? Or do you come over to somebody's house and say, yeah, let's have communion today? There's no corporate, and there's no corporate expression of worship when you're just off on your own in little islands doing your own thing. And, that, and by the way, I think this is how Satan really fouls us up. If you show me a, a Christian who is, is weak, and I'll show you a Christian who most likely is not really connected to other believers. Most likely. They're not connected to other believers. You're need, you need that connectedness. Um, I often said the, church, the New Testament doesn't have this concept of a Rambo Christian. You know, you're dropped off in the middle of the jungle and with you, know, you make your own bow and arrow and you just sort of assault the yeah. forces of Satan on your own. There is no concept to that. You're part of... A group of believers, and we are there to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to teach one another, to to be there for each other. That's part of the body life of of the church. So it's both. It's not an either or. It's a both. One minute. Any questions? I got that done just in time. How's that? Time that just right. We
1: have our new lesson. Can I follow up on this?
0: Yeah. That so, yeah. Want to yeah. yeah. Sometimes you go into church and it says in their doctrinal statement, "We believe in the Scripture." And you talk to the pastor. It's like, well, you know, we just sort of had it there. We never got around to taking it out, but you know, you sort of believe what you want. Um, no, you ne- you need to check the doctrine. The first thing, if you're to say, okay, Schaefer, let's say you left Open Door for whatever reason, and you went, let's say I moved across the country, or Don and I, we want to go down to South Carolina to retire someday, you know, where it's warm and you've got mountains. Um, what would I look for in a church? I would look, I would, first thing I would do if I walked into church is I'd pick up their doctrinal statement, I'd take a look at it. And I would say, can I, can I agree with this? Do I agree with all of these points of doctrine? And if I agree with all those points of doctrine, then I would look and say, you know, am I comfortable here? Is their worship style something I'm comfortable with? Well, then there's, that's a candidate to be part of. There are some churches where I can agree with their doctrinal statement, but I would not fit in very well there. All right? For example, a charismatic church. I might agree with their doctrinal statement. They may be solid down the line doctrinally, but their expressions of worship would freak me out. I would not be comfortable in there. I'm not saying they're not Christians, you understand that. I'm just saying I'm not comfortable there. I want to find a church where I can be comfortable in. And then the third thing, can I serve the Lord there? You know, if I go to a church and I'm told, shut up, give me your money, sit in the pew, don't cause trouble, why am I going to that church? There's no reason for me to do that. I want to be part of the ministry of a church. I want to be able to minister there. So look at the doctrinal statement. So next week we're going to look at I forget what I have on the outline. But that's going to be next week.
1: All right. The purpose. Wait a yeah. See, like purpose and oh, I'm sorry. Church. I would like to apologize for interrupting the class this morning. Run a bit late. That's all right. Don't
0: worry about it. You come in anytime. time. Glad to have you here.
1: All
0: right, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day you've granted. And I pray that you would help us as we ponder and think about these things. And... Um, Help us to work through them and and understand what your word would say to us. And as we study this topic in the coming weeks, that you grant us clarity of thought. And help us to be what we ought to be, Father, salt and light in this dark world, that we may bring people to you, to know you as the only true God, and to believe in your Son, who is the only way to heaven. In Christ's name, amen.